All right, welcome back to Misery Point Radio. I, of course, am your host. My name is Mike. And as always, I appreciate you hanging out with me today. Got an awesome show lined up. Got an awesome couple of shows lined up. And this show today is kind of a part one, if you will. So I have an epic interview with a good friend of mine. I'd call him a local musician, but he's really been everywhere. Done everything. Running the gamut from performing musician, to producer, to engineer, artist development, representation, you name it. Won some awards. Yeah, little thing called an Emmy. Yeah, no big deal. You know, everybody's got one of those. <laughs> so I'm really excited today to have an old friend of mine who is working the scene and doing the deal come on talk about his life in the business his life in the spotlight his life in the producer's chair and to his most current project where for the last seven years he has been working tirelessly to promote musicians of all skill levels, of all backgrounds, of all styles of music, to provide them a forum to, as I like to say, share their awesomeness with the world. And I am here, on location, in his studio, to get the inside scoop. So please welcome to Misery Point Radio, the legendary Jeff Tassin. Jeff, thanks for letting me invade your studio, man. I have been looking forward to this for a long time. You're welcome indeed. Awesome. Uh, Jeff and I have been acquainted for some years back when I used to run a little European restaurant slash coffee shop slash bistro, and Jeff was running the musical program for that. And uh, that, was a, that was a really awesome time, I think, for me, and uh, Jeff and I got to become friends and uh, kind of stayed touch haphazardly over the years, but I've always tried to keep an eye on what you've been doing and you've been in this area for so long now you are definitely a a fixture in the Kitsap music scene to say the least as a matter of fact i think i played uh, your wedding you did in fact play my wedding uh which was awesome and to this day every time uh, my wife hears wonderful tonight it's a very emotional song so uh yeah thank <laughs> oh, you that was right. that's cool. one of my favorite memories that was definitely super epic and if i remember correctly that weather was so touch and go that day yeah. Uh, is it going to rain? Is it not going to rain? We had an outdoor wedding. And so uh, there was a lot of stuff that was uh, writing on the fact that the weather would hold true and it had been misting. And then right before the ceremony was going to start, everything cleared up. Yeah. And then within the hour after it was done, the rain came. So, uh, so that was a uh, super it pardoned you. I, Hey, <laughs> I, I deserve one pardon in my life. Yeah, and apparently go. that was it. So, so yeah, thank you again for that. That was also super epic. That, was, that so. was cool. So, uh, Jeff Tassin studios, uh, tell us about what you got going on here. This is a studio that I built for myself as a songwriter later, 
uh, I started producing other songwriters, but it is pretty strictly uh, held in, in that ballpark. I have had bands in here, and as you can see, it'd be a little tight. I even had to move some furniture because the bands really wanted to record here. Right. And uh, so we managed to do that. But typically what I do here is, is produce songwriters. Uh, that is demos either for publishing or uh, even records, you know, for distribution for, for writers. Sure. So you serve as a producer, engineer, everything uh, from start to finish. Kind of a one-stop shop here. Yeah, I was looking on your website, and not only are you uh, representing and working with artists, but um, you work with television stations and do kind of soundtracks. And, and tell us about that. That's pretty epic. Um. After I moved back from Nashville here, I sort of sought out a career as uh, a writer for television and, and specials and whatever. So I affiliated myself with Channel 9 and got in on some really groundbreaking projects. That'd be a KCTS? KCTS okay. Seattle, yeah. And at the time, they were I came in just at the right time because they were developing the very first HD show. Uh, HD was not standard then. As a matter of fact, PBS, KCTS, this station here in Seattle, were the very first people to do any kind of HD show ever. Ever. Crazy. Yeah, they had done, uh, they had sent, in conjunction with NHK Japan, KCTS co-sponsored this huge six one-hour part series called The Miracle Planet. They had already gone out like six camera locations in the world and and got all this footage and dumped it off at KCTS because they had the machines. And we wrote the soundtrack to all that. And it was the first HD broadcast ever. Ten years later, uh, well, I don't think it was ten years. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure when. But we did another show um, that was the that launched the very first HD station in the U.S. and that's KCTS. They started broadcasting all HD content from then on. So I mean, I really lucked out in that stream of time, and affiliated myself as an independent music producer, and got in on. I'm still getting in on it, but there, are maybe 33 projects or so. You've been involved in 33 projects? Yes, either as music producer or a writer or both. Writer as in like the, the script of the show for the, the audio, the talking, things like that? Writing the music, the creating, music. Creating the music, the soundtrack, and then being in on the editing and, and whatnot. Awesome. And so you won some awards. I was lucky enough to to pick up three Emmy Awards and... Some other things, right. like I've worked with Rockway TV in New York on a project that got me some awards. Um, as long as we're going to go down that road. Yeah, let's go down that road. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a Chicago F International Chicago Film Festival Award and um, a Houston Film Festival Award International. Uh, probably my what I think is my best award is an international telly award for excellence of uh, composition. Awesome. So how do you how do you get involved in those projects? Do people seek you out, or is this something where you're saying, I want to go after this particular project? Well, a lot of those uh, projects we did at KCTS 
uh, it was a core, it just kind of happened simultaneously, a core group of writers okay. assembled. And uh, the producers would bring that to the music director, who at that particular time was Danny Gore. And Danny Gore uh, would collect this hub of musicians, and they'd go through the project. Okay. And kind of assign things this way and that way. Later on, I started working directly as the music director to some of the producers. Got it. It got a little more free. So initially, it was almost like a staff position where they just, here's the work that we have to do collectively, and this is your role, and this is your role, and you just did your roles. And it just so happened that it was so awesome. Everybody loved it, and then uh, the work grew from there. We kept getting awards. Yeah. All kinds of things. We did the Over series, which started with Over Washington, which gleaned enough for two gold records, and um, and then it went to Over Florida, Over California. Every state wanted one of those. So yeah, I swear we went through half the states. Yeah, are you? St- is that still an active project? It, it's it's uh, no. Uh, I think I jumped off that ship uh, when they got to New England. <laughs> <laughs> you jumped off, you were done, or you felt I was, like... <laughs> I was done with the overs you know, for that time. Nice. Uh, so They discontinued them after that for whatever reasons. Yeah. The uh, um, affiliation, though, with KCTS and PBS is still, still active, though, for you? It, it's still going, although the trouble... I won't get too much down this dark rabbit hole. Sure. The trouble with politics in... KCTS has really uh, has really crippled them. Sure, they had a lot of trouble with uh, nameless people at the top sure. uh, with their fingers in the jars, and they lost a lot of fun, uh, government funding. Well, sure, because I mean, it, it is it does uh, rely on various methods of funding. It's not something that has a yep. continual cash stream. So you know, donations or party affiliations or you know or what I call uh, back pats and handshakes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, be... there's a lot of really good folks. Uh, some of them well-to-do, some of them sure. are simple folks like me Sure. that donate to, to Channel 9 KCTS for, for the public benefit. Right. And then the government did sponsor, a, a, I forget how much, but a significant percentage. Yeah. But when there was these political upheavals, sure. they pulled their funding. Yeah. That's why they're pitching more often. Yeah. So consequently, they're doing far less production uh, here, which is a pity, but they yeah. moved a lot of it back to Boston. Okay. And do you still have contact with any of those people that you worked with? Uh, I do, indeed, yeah. Yeah. Anything in the works that you uh, you can discuss? Um, uh, not exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I will say that uh, Bill Fast, brilliant engineer, uh, who is now retired, and he's thinking abroad now. Oh. So we've talked about doing some things with NHK. Okay. Awesome. So getting back to, I guess, uh, your what I know you for, and, and probably what a lot of people know you for, is, is your music. You've been a performing artist for how long now? Uh, probably 54 or 5 years, something like that. Yes, and I, I want to clarify that Jeff still actively performs. So um, tell us a little bit about your background and and kind of where you were and where you are now. All right. Well, I started like many other kids in the 60s, you know, with the kind of music that was happening in the mid to late 60s. 
I bought my first decent electric guitar, which is on that wall. Yes, and uh, as a quick little segue there, uh, we're in Jeff's studio, and we are surrounded by lots of cool gear and some some vintage guitars, and Jeff did tell me the quick story about each of them, which I thought was really cool. But the uh, the first guitar, the Gibson. The, the first decent guitar I had, I had a... Uh, a Zenon before that. I right. think it was a Japanese knockoff <laughs> Strat. Uh, but this guitar is a 66 TDC Gibson 335. And I bought it brand new in 66. And that started you on the path to... Uh... Well, I started playing professionally when I was 14 years old. Yeah. yeah. Man, 14, playing professionally. So what does that mean to play professionally when you're 14? Get paid. Get paid. <laughs> Get paid. <laughs> And sadly, I, I might say that when I played all city dances mm-hmm. at age 14, 15 years old, we made 15 or 50 bucks a man. Yeah. Then the average musician uh. today, <laughs> 50 stinking years later, makes about 40, 50 bucks a guy. Yeah. It, in, in the clubs that, that we can work in. It hasn't moved too far past that, has it? No. And look how much we're paying for everything else. Yeah. yeah. You know, when you when you balance it out, you, you look at, you know, the not just the time investment, but, you know, the gear and the, the travel alone. The yeah. travel alone is what'll kill you. Yeah. But, you know, sometimes people are driving cross country, you know, for a gig that really doesn't pay anything. And you're spending money to play yeah. for the majority of your career. I, I talked about this uh with, with uh, the Fibs who were on the show here just recently, and we, we talked about that extensively, how they were touring, and, and it's like, man, this is just so expensive. Yeah. But you stuck with it from 14, and then where'd you go from there? Uh, I managed to get lucky. We uh, we formed a band, uh, the first band that had some major success. I was 16, and we released a record on Sheridan Records called Little Lies. Uh, Bill Carter and John Carter, Tom Wilson, were in that group. Tom uh, Wilson. Tom Wilson. No yeah. kidding. Uh, Tom Wilson and I did some writing together with uh, John Carter. Okay. Bill Carter at the time wasn't writing much, but he was a bass player at the time. And I don't know if you know Bill Carter, but Bill Carter went on to form a band with my brother Rick Tasson. Okay. Went to Austin in the very early days. And uh, now he's hanging with Don- Johnny Depp and doing some of his band tracks. And That's crazy. He's written songs for Stevie Ray Vaughan and Black Keys and a bunch of people. Awesome. And we've had him up to the showcase at Brother Don's. No kidding. A few times already. He's threatening to come back next month. <laughs> it is a threat. <laughs> the threat is real, yo. <laughs> but that's, that's where it started was, right. was the Bremerton gang. And that band was called? The Spindle. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, you can still find the original recordings in the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame of the Northwest. Crazy. We're on volume three, I think. In the Hall of Fame. In the Northwest Hall of Fame. Northwest Hall of Fame. That's awesome. I'm proud to say. And so so I know uh, Tom Wilson, uh, loosely anyways, uh, and, and he's still around here? He still is, yeah. Yeah, crazy. He's playing, uh, he's still playing as well with his wife and some other folks intermittently. Right. Now, I remember he was playing with, uh, was it uh, Chris? Larson? Matthews, maybe? Chris? Yeah, I don't remember the I'm last sure. name, but yeah, they were, they, they were, um, they would come down to the, the restaurant every so oh, often. Oh, Chris and Anderson. Anderson, thank you. 
right, right. Yeah, they were a cool duo, and they'd play a bunch of cool old school stuff. Yeah, some and, talented folk. Yeah. So the Spindles, um, how long were you in that project for? The Spindle lasted for a couple of years. Yeah. We had uh, a hit in the Northwest called uh, Little Eyes. Okay. And uh, we kind of broke up and went separate ways. It wasn't until a few years later I emerged in another band that did very well in, in the Seattle circuit called Jarrett. Was that Jarrett? Yeah. Okay. So that I was I'm... the first formation of Jarrett with my brother. Awesome. And you guys were around for quite some time then. Yeah, we still play together. Yeah. <laughs> now, I think last time I was at uh, the showcase, which we'll talk about here uh, in a little bit, but didn't some of the guys from Jarrett show up there and, and kind of do some of their own? Uh, one guy on the piano, and uh, I seem to recall that you'd mentioned that these were guys that used to play with. So I'm not sure if that was them or not. Yeah. But um, Yeah, well, a bunch. Whenever I can, I try to drag my friends off the road, those who are, <laughs> who have mustered up, you know, some cool stuff. Right. And therefore, I've been able to get Bill Carter off the road. Um, I did some touring with um, Al Alto. Right. I don't know if you know Al. I do know Al Alto, and, and he's very uh, predominant in this area as well. Yeah. And we toured some California things with uh, Caroline Aiken. I've been able to pull her okay. off the road and do a legs, do parts of legs of tour with her up here and have her be the guest artist at the showcase. That's awesome. And she is a, she is a doll. Oh. She is, she'll rip your heart out. <laughs> I mean, she's one of the best singer songwriters you'll ever hear. Yeah. And you've encountered quite a few in your day. In fact, uh, did you play with, was it Dolly Parton? I did do tracks for Dolly Parton. Mm -hmm. Dolly Parton. I wasn't in the same room with her at the same time. But, right. Uh, Curb Studios. And sure. She voiced over after that. Okay. Yeah, but there's Clint Black, uh, Delbert McClinton, Bonnie Bramlett. Um, we toured with the Oak Ridge Boys for my brother and I both. As uh, as part of their entourage, opening for them. Nice. And uh, Charlie Daniels, we we opened for Charlie Daniels at the Coliseum down there in Nashville, and that went uh, to Radio Luxembourg, uh, broadcast Radio Luxembourg, Germany, and it's funny because one of the stupidest songs I ever wrote, we did during that show, and it got to Europe. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I swear, I wrote this on a fluke up in Alaska when, when it's hard to explain, but the only bar, country bar, broke down, and all these people were country, and they wanted to hear country music, and we were a concert rock band. Okay. You know? And so I was literally threatened with a knife if I didn't play country. By whom? By some guy that came out, <laughs> one of the fishermen that came out of the crowd with his knife open and says, I'm going to slit you from belly to brisket if you don't play country. Uh, I don't think he was that serious, but he was serious enough to brandish a knife. Crazy. You know? So I just took off on this flat-picking thing and threw some words at it, and we played that multiple times a set, and by the end of the night, it kind of formulated into this song. And we played it as a joke from then on. But and it caught on. But it caught on, and a friend of mine that we were touring with at the time said, uh, let's, let's play that song. We're in a studio, actually, uh, playing with a bunch of really highfalutin studio guys. Um, and she ran out of tape, so they were rewinding the tape, 
So she said, let's play that thing. So I started noodling with it. and <laughs> Play the thing. <laughs> and yeah, play the thing. And uh, Leland Scalar and Michael Bard were on drums. They picked up the whole thing. And pretty soon, by the time they had the tape on it, yes, we did tape. Uh, she said, roll it. Let's cut it. And she ended, it, that ended up on her album. Yeah. Which ended up still to this day, she sold it to, uh, um, to Warner Brothers. And I'm still getting royalties from it because it got picked up as a bluegrass standard in Europe. Huh. You know, it's so, a stupid ass song. You, I, <laughs> I never meant to write, you know. I hear that quite a bit from people who uh, either they're in a rut creatively and, and they're just, you know, kind of dicking around doing whatever. And they just come up with something that they don't like, but it's like, I just had to have something. Yeah. And then sure enough, that turns out to be something they're known for. A lot of times people's most popular songs are either accidental songs yeah. or songs that they just, they wrote it, they finished it and said, I really just don't like this. Or it becomes popular and subsequently as a result of the popularity, they just get sick of hearing about it all the time. <laughs> so I don't know, yeah. you know, the chicken or the egg in this case, but uh, that's crazy that you'd be somewhat known for something that was not even intended to ever be. Yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, I was uh, in Nashville a couple of years ago at a party and there was some people jamming and, and there was this gal who had played the, played the Grand Ole Opry that night. She's a great mandolin player. And she came up to me afterwards, after we finished this one jam section and said, would you do me a favor? I said, yeah. And she said, will you play Movin', which is the name of the song? Okay. Uh, because it's the first song I ever learned when I was a kid. I said, what? One of your songs. <laughs> yeah, well, it's that stupid song. Yeah. Because oh. it's a flat picking song. It's right. kind of an excuse to, to sound country. Right. You know? So she picked it up and played it. She killed it. Yeah. So that song was nostalgic for her. It was, yeah. How does that make you feel? Oh, it's very warm at heart for sure. Yeah, especially does it does it give you a different perspective on on that how somebody else can take a piece of your work and not at all get the same vibe that you have off of it? It hits me all the time yeah. because you know, other people uh, react to what you write sure. differently than you do because I knew the circumstances behind that. Right. And she did not. Yeah. You know, see associated it with her life. It happens all the time in music. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. We were talking about that recently as well, where, you know, a lot of the times artists have a reason for writing something. And then sometimes it's really more of a personal thing than anything, but it turns into something that, that gains popularity and people interpret the meaning their own way. They, they take it on as, as if it were their song according to their life or their circumstances and whether or not they're interpreting it the way the artist intended it to be interpreted is yes. rarely the same. They just, yes. the paths divulge so, uh, or diverge so, so differently. One of the songs, uh, that I wrote, uh, ended up on the blue water album by Freddie Pink, uh, that really resonated with people way far more than I thought it would. Yeah. This just, it's a love song. Yeah. You know, it's a, woe is me kind of love requited, unrequited song. Sure. Uh, and I wrote it because I got a poisonous spider bite on my foot oh. and I was delirious <laughs> walking back and forth in severe pain. And I just did that to keep myself from thinking, yeah. you know, from feeling the pain. Uh, but it's a love song and people really identify with it. So. Yeah. Hey, and if they only knew that it was born out of a spider bite, yeah, right. <laughs> which I detest by the way. So uh, I hate spiders. They're disgusting. It was a brown recluse. Too. Oh man. Those Almost are, lost a knuckle. Those are nasty MFs. I have a girl that, that works for me that she has a very nasty scar on her leg. She got two bites. Ah. 
at the same time. So they don't know if it was two different spiders or it's just got bit twice. But um, wow. I'll tell you what, those recluses, no thanks. Yep. Don't care for them. Move them out. <laughs> Move them out. Deport them. Yeah. Hey, there you go. <laughs> Speaking of politics. Oh, all yeah, recluses. Right. All recluses. <laughs> Damn you all. So um, now getting into, I guess, a little bit more. Uh, so your your career has spanned a few decades and you're now in the role of, say, a producer where you're starting to or, or not starting to, but you are actively involved in whether or not it's the careers or the projects of many other people as both uh, on the recording side of things as well as on the performing side of things. So before we get into this uh, magical showcase that we keep alluding to, um, what are some of the acts that you have been working with uh, locally here in your studio? Uh, There's a bunch. Yeah. Uh, They come up in the showcase all the time, and once in a while I give away studio time. Sure. And so I'll get a chance to do that. And then they'll want to produce an album here. Okay. Um, no, of note, albums uh, are Niall Hartley. Okay. Niall Hartley's uh, Dime Store Cowboy album is fantastic. It's a country album uh, in some areas, country rock. Um, and uh, Al Alto's album. Okay. I was in on the mix down of that. And... Uh, uh, Tammy Frost's album. Mm-hmm. All three of those people are stable staples here in the music scene. Uh, fantastic musicians. Sure. Uh, Torre uh, was a couple years back. An incredible, uh, talented group. Um, actually, what came out through the showcase uh, was Afton Prater as well. She premiered here at age 14, I think. Now she's been to Nashville, recorded and and done some other things. Awesome. Uh, uh, Jim Skews, uh, Jim Landis, all these are uh, frequent flyers at the showcase and have produced albums. Um, uh, uh, Jim Skews here, and there's another studio that uh, Jim Landis recorded in. This is there's musician after musician. They're yeah. really talented. So... You have, for the last seven years, been doing this this showcase, and uh, we'll, we'll, let's just go ahead and get into that. And the the anniversary happens to be the thirtieth. The thirtieth next Tuesday. Yeah, next Tuesday. A week from today. Crazy. Yeah. So tell us about this magical showcase and and what it entails. The showcase is from seven to ten ish. Um, I do a 20, 30 minute intro so that no one has to go first. Right. And sort of orient people. So meaning you play, I play for the first yes. uh, 30 minutes or so of said showcase. Yes, of said showcase. So you're forced to listen to Jeff Tassin for you're half an hour. You're forced to listen to me for <laughs> half an hour. And it, it's been uh, magical for me. I discovered long ago because this isn't the first showcase I've had. Um, I had one in Seattle that lasted three, four years and and the benefit for me personally is that I get to take my entire catalog right. and cycle it through that half hour in front of the showcase so I can tighten it up sure. for shows. Really take a hard look again and again and again at certain songs. And if they really still get no reaction, you know, you got to face the fact it's, it's a chucker. You know, it's funny too because – Sometimes you play to musicians and sometimes you play to people who aren't musicians. Yes. And 
the people who aren't musicians are going to have the most real reaction to what you're doing because they don't have the texture or the background or the necessarily the know-how. All they know is how it makes them feel. Exactly. So you definitely put yourself out there when you're experimenting in front of people. Um, But it's a good, it's a good avenue if if you're really somebody who's got thick skin and and wants a a genuine uh, reaction to what you do. I, I tell people over and over and over again, don't, take compliments or input from your friends or your family because they're lying to you. (laughs) They're lying to you every time because they owe you something. They know who you're not. Right. Or they know who you think they think you are or whatever their concept of you is. It's wrong. Yeah. As a musician. Sure. As a musician, it's wrong. You need to play over and over again the same song for people who owe you nothing, don't know, don't know you from nothing. Right. Then if you can get their attention, you know that you got something. Sure. If you can't get their attention, uh, okay, to be honest, there are other v- variables. Uh, it's the place. It's distracting. It's just sure. that. That's why re- repetition is so important. You have to play to people over and over again, and you got to take that data and distill how much of that was a fair listening and how much input from those people that uh, that is valuable to you yes plus there's one other factor that, that you didn't mention and that is the uh, intoxicant factor yeah yeah that may or may not be present well, there today. you go yeah i didn't mention that but that's definitely in the environment yeah no it's there and the first time you're playing anywhere right uh you know you're looking at the walls and the pictures and how many tvs they got on the walls sure. and, and uh what the layout is the second time you play there you're not looking at the tvs it takes a while to get comfortable in a place too so yeah playing rip repeatedly in as many venues as you can is the most important thing for a writer to do for sure who wants to have any kind of performance capability do you think that the people that you bring to your showcase have the same perspective as you in that sense i think most of them do yeah Yeah. i think most of them do understand a lot about that because uh just my opinion uh it's more difficult to run an open mic for original material than it is for commercial material right obviously because uh people don't know what they're listening to and most people don't care yes Uh, or i should say many people don't care when they're walking into a club and they hear music that they've never heard before uh typically they're not paying attention yes and it's worth noting um specifically your showcase focuses on original material and i don't know if i go as far as to say that you know covers are off the table because there's been a couple here and there but definitely maybe that's something that comes up at towards the end of the show or there's bring everybody back up and then have a random jam kind of a thing but when you're on your showcase you're there to play your own stuff yes and after i finish my set i I make it clear that covers are allowed but we give away all the tips Mm -hmm. to we raffle it off to one of the musicians that play that night but in order to qualify for those tips, you've got to play original material. Sure. So it's our way of promoting original material. Absolutely. And we should also note that this is in Brother Don's, which is a very well-known establishment. It's been here in uh, Kitsap County, Bremerton, uh, Washington State for, geez, I don't know, 40 30 years. years, 40 years. Dang. 40 years, yeah. Yeah. So this is a this is an institution that's that's been through many changes, but... Uh, Jeff has been rocking Brother Don's now for the last seven years. So 
What do you think is the biggest challenge with with this showcase? Is it getting the acts in the door? Is it getting the customers to come in and say, hey, I want to listen to original material? Is it getting, you know, uh, Gordy to <laughs> let you keep doing it? What's going on? No, Gordy's all totally behind it. Yeah. Uh, he's He's been uh, really, uh, he's got the insight mm-hmm. to know that, because um, starting one of these is really hard. Right. You know, as, as we've said before, it's harder than doing a, a regular jam night. So you don't just do it one, two, three weeks and go, you know, this isn't working. We're out of here. Right. He has stuck with it for, for that long, and he's benefited by it. It has grown all of, all, all of his other nights of the week because musicians, quality musicians, are known to hang there. And I might point out, too, it takes a little more stick to to write your own songs mm-hmm. and perform them than it does to learn commercial material and perform them. Sure. So typically, the quality of the music on a songwriter's night is better than a regular open mic uh, because they're, the people are generally more dedicated right. to it. So because of that, it's known to have high-quality music. And we do a nice job there, too. Mm-hmm. There's nice HD cameras on a new HD system that Gordy just installed. Yeah, yeah. The The setup is awesome. And so a lot of people might be picturing just a bunch of singer-songwriters gathering around an old stage with a couple of beat-up old SM57s or something yeah. and, you know, a little dark jury corner of the universe. But this setup is really cool. Yeah, there's cameras, there's screens, and then you produce really cool videos that then you share via social media. So not only are you being heard and being seen locally, but then you're putting that stuff out there on the interwebs and allowing those artists to now share those however many hundreds or thousands of times with their own people. That's right. And our, our club photographer, uh, Patrish Tassin, my yes, wife. Yes, I believe you know her. <laughs> I believe I know her, yeah. She's there every week. Uh, she won't be there tonight. Okay. But she's there every week taking pictures and stills. I'll mm-hmm. be in her stead. Okay. And not doing quite as good a job. No, no, I'll do a fine job. <laughs> I'll do a great job. Um, but then we distill those and post them on Facebook on her site, pattytassin.com. Or Patty Tassin Facebook, rather. And Jeff Tassin's Songwriters Showcase uh, Facebook and Jeff Tassin Facebook page. Sure. It's all about the showcase. Yeah, that's awesome. And then just as a quick side tangent, uh, I forgot to mention this earlier when we were talking about your other studio projects, but you got this drone thing going on yeah. that you do some fantastic aerial photography with. And sometimes those uh, aerial photography uh, bits and pieces kind of show up as backdrops to the to the showcase or whatnot. So yeah. uh, I just that's super awesome. Uh, drones are fascinating and somewhat scary to me. Um, but I've done some private uh, contracts with yeah. drone work and some commercial uh, contracts and just go out there and fly the hell out of it because I love it. Yeah. Uh, these days, you can get an incredibly good 4K. And for those that, of you that aren't familiar with 4K, 4K is to HD um, quality as HD is to old-fashioned TV cathode ray tube quality yeah, crt tv so it's instead of two thousand pixels across picture you get a four thousand pixel across picture and we have i have a drone 
two drones that are 4K drones. Right. And they have three axis gimbals on them so that it's really beautiful stability on those. Yeah. It's not as fast as some of the other popular drones like the DJI drones, uh, although they make some really nice ones. But they have nine-inch props on them, and they're more squirrely. Right. These have 13-inch props on them that turn at 4,000 RPM, and the lift on them is so stable. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. It's like you're on a, like you're on a, it's actually smoother than a crane. Yeah, and and some of the videos you've posted will have like your music in the background, just as some really cool aerial shots, as if you're watching, you know, uh, Channel 9 or, you know, something, the Nature Channel or, or some kind of documentary with just fantastic aerial photography and just an awesome soothing music in the background. So oh, cool, thanks. Yeah, and... Uh, yeah, feel free to, to go to Bird's Eye, Jeff Tasson's Bird's Eye on Facebook. Okay. Where there's a, a I think, I don't remember, a 20-some uh, productions, uh, drone productions. And yeah. it is it is all my music. And and just to uh, kind of clarify, you were talking about the uh, 4K versus uh, CRT. Prior to 4K, the, the high-def video standard has been 1080p for roughly the last 10 years. And everybody was like, oh, 1080p, they'll never top 1080p. I yeah, mean, right. there's so many pixels in there. I mean, there's no physical way. And so 4K is literally four times the resolution um, of 1080p. So you're talking insane amounts of detail. Yeah. On, and not just in the picture, but, you know, with frame rates and with uh, just different transitions. Yeah. And so it's remarkable, remarkable quality. And the showcase you're recording in 4K. We're, we're recording the yeah. showcase in 4K. Yeah. We are rendering in a format that's more friendly sure. to uh, to YouTube and, and Facebook. Sure. But, you know, the old adage, crap in, crap out. <laughs> if you put gold in, you're going to get gold out. Sure, so, yeah. So it's it's pretty high quality. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say, too, the, the movie industry is passing us up. I know this is painful to hear, but they're already in 8 and 16K. That's at 120 frames per second. The money to get into that technology so far ahead of it is just yeah. outstanding. I mean, you just the 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 mindset of how far ahead of the game you have to be to even conceptualize what the next step is going to yeah. be. So you're talking you put out a piece of technology on the market and somebody's already got two generations past that in the works yeah, right. and it takes at least a decade to get to that next generation. Yeah. So yeah, on that note, when uh, KCTS put out the first HD station, right, a Channel 5 followed, Channel 7 followed, and within a couple of years, they were all trying to get on that boat. But the weird thing was there was no HD content. <laughs> so what they were doing was up-converting yeah. from SD all these, cropping the picture and up-converting. So it was actually terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but they had to broadcast, find out some kind of filler to... To broadcast on those stations. Sure. Well, and that's it's still happening. It still happens. Yeah. And I mean, I, I work in an industry that uh, in the gaming industry where, you know, resolution, graphics, horsepower, all that stuff for consoles is vital to the success on the market that it, it be able to be lauded as this is the top of the line. This is the best that the industry has to offer right now. And then notwithstanding the fact that probably a large majority of people don't actually have the necessary devices to to, as you put it, to render into that that proper format. So if you've got a 4K console and you've got a 1080p television, yeah. well, you know, you're not really, you're not 
4K and that whole thing, you're upscaling, you know, you're interlacing those pixels to, to a certain refresh rate to get as close to that as possible. Right. But you're not actually hitting that true form. So yeah, most TVs out now are 720 to 1080p. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not 2040. Yeah, and 4K, 4K though, I do see that as as becoming the new standard. And they're flooding the market. I think 4K is hitting it faster as a standard than when 1080p became a standard. That seemed to take forever. Yeah, uh, because I was again selling hardware that could output at that, but people weren't able to get that. Right. So I assume with like the videos that you've got coming on there, if people that are properly equipped, they'll be blown out of their minds. But even if they don't have that, that particular hardware that's capable of doing that, it's still a better picture. That's their plan. (laughs) They're going to keep us upgrading forever. It's planned obsolescence, right? Is that how that's? Yeah. That's crazy. So these, um, these artists that uh, that you're working with for this showcase, are you seeing new talent come through every showcase, or how often are you seeing kind of the same people coming through? At least every other showcase, there's Some, a new talent. Sometimes, uh, sometimes every, and sometimes uh, uh, several different new artists come in at a time. You know, so the turnover has been. I think we've aired in the last seven years close to 500 writers. Oh wow! So. Uh, we used to keep na- track of the names, but uh, it's too odd. Yeah. <laughs> so we, <laughs> so we just let it go, and uh, and most of them are reoccurrent, whether they're reoccurring every week or uh, once a month or a couple times a month or something is another thing. Sure. So, what is the ultimate goal of the songwriter showcase? Is there an end game? Uh, you know. Uh, the end game for me is to cover my entire library. I've yeah. got 500 songs. I've got 500 instrumentals separate from that. Uh, not many of which I can play at the showcase because they involve bands and whatnot. More than one person. Right. I.e. more than just you. Yeah. And not all, not all the songs I write are are suitable for an acoustic guitar delivery, you know, so... That narrows down to a few hundred things I'd like to go through mm-hmm. and really do that. That's one goal of mine. The other goal of mine is that I really enjoy uh, helping artists get educated about their craft. I like, uh, I've done some beneficial shows where we have another side show called the Nano NAM. Okay. Which is uh, the NAM show for us here, uh, sort of. It's an instrument luthiers show. So, so Nam is a Nam is a big international kind of musicians gathering, if you will, to showcase artists, technology, new things on the market, new projects, and, and so you're kind of taking that concept and and putting it on a micro level. Yeah, and what, the way we do it is we we get three luthiers from this area, uh, and we match them with three of the best players to highlight these instruments. Okay. And we go through uh, and we have the audience ask them questions. We ask them questions about their processes and how they make these instruments, woods, etc. I know questions are probably forming in, in your mind as we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, what kind of woods, etc. You know, sure. And we ask them about that. And then we have uh, one of those musicians play that instrument. No. Has John Thayer been involved in this? John Thayer has, yeah. Nice. John, John Thayer is a is a very well known uh, guitar builder in 
in Bremerton in Kitsap County again, and not just as a builder and as a luthier, but also does a lot of restoration uh, for classic and vintage instruments. And his his workmanship is just phenomenal. Yes, and worth noting, he does it all by himself. Very little help he has from the outside. So it's it's a tiny little workshop, and so much work he'll never get it all done. Yeah, he is <laughs> he is a real studier that one. Yeah. Uh, John Kerrigan has also been featured. Okay. Uh, John Kerrigan is here in Port Orchard. Oh, wow. He builds f- fantastic things, uh, all custom made. He builds them maybe two, three at a time. Okay. Um, uh, we've also had uh, Ira Langwa interested in doing the next one. <laughs> uh, the uh, piano guy. The piano guy, yeah. <laughs> He's interested in being in on one, one of those. He is a, I forget how many fourth generation uh, piano builder right uh, that has built for some of the most famous folks in the world uh, outfitted some of the most famous concert halls in the world with his with his work uh, he's such a fan of the showcase that he up and gave us a piano that's crazy he gave us a hundred dollar a hundred year old uh, Hamilton piano that's amazing to use uh, I have a funny story about Ira, as I know him, Langlois. Um, Langlois. <laughs> Langlois. <Yeah. laughs> I always knew it as well, Langlois. it's spelled Lang- right? Langlois. So my first job I ever had was as a piano mover with his company. Oh, really? Yes. Now, I was in junior high, and I got this job as a favor because my mom did computer work for him. And I was scrawny. I mean, I'm talking like probably in ninth grade, I probably weighed... 100 pounds, 120 pounds, zero muscle, nothing. And I, the first time I went in there and met him and I introduced myself and he looked at me and he's like, oh, you're the guy. And uh, yeah, that was... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, oops. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. Can you, do you think you can lift these pianos? And I'm like, sure. You know? <laughs> yeah. And so it would, uh, I went on, I think, two or three jobs that we delivered to like Port Gamble and we we're carrying pianos upstairs and across oh, lawns. Wow. And it was usually two people. And... You're kidding me. Admittedly enough, uh, everybody else was carrying my load as well. So that job did not last long yeah, for yeah, me. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> but it was really cool that he uh, he gave me my first my first job I ever had. And uh, I always appreciated it. And he's a super cool guy. And his whole family is super awesome. And obviously, they're known for the quality of their work as well. So for him to be involved in your showcase on some level is also pretty epic. It is pretty epic. Yeah. It's epic for us because we're just we're real pleased. He's actually brought in we have a jazz at the club 4200 kitsap way in bremerton okay uh at brother dunn's we have jazz on frequently on fridays and ray olds is a internationally known pianist who heads up a jazz trio out there frequently and brings in some of his friends off the road like uh gottlieb okay who was the sax player for the tonight show oh wow and some other high mucky mucks who really know their way around some instruments and for a couple of those shows ira actually brought in one of his pianos oh wow yeah it's really cool i've been to a couple of these showcases and i think one of the things that i like the best is that with proper musicians as i call them who can jump in to back anybody up at any time with no prior knowledge of their material to see that come together is 
pretty fascinating. And, and I've seen that a few times with, with you yourself. And uh, it seems like anybody's willing to just kind of help out if somebody wants an accompaniment. You guys all just jump in and start jamming. And, and to watch the look on somebody's face who's never heard an accompaniment like that with their stuff. Yeah. Like, holy crap, that's my song. It, that's really it can be really oh, fun oh man that's that's just awesome and i i've talked to many musicians about that over the years of experiences either in the studio or in the live setting where they're working with people they've never met people who've never heard their material people who they would have otherwise never encountered had it not been for some freak occurrence some meeting at a local show yeah yeah um and so i think you provide that experience for a lot of people as well so. that's a whole another aspect of performance is yeah. improvisation yeah which is it's real good training yeah you know yeah <laughs> i could probably use some more of that training myself um yeah so uh so tonight uh do we have anybody specific that's going to be on the dockets that you know about I have nothing specific planned. Yeah, just whoever shows up, shows up. Yeah. We have Mike Peacock here tonight. Oh, my God. That's me. Mike Peacock is going to be featured tonight as uh, as a representative of Misery Point Radio. Yeah, as We're a looky We're definitely going to make a big deal out of that. Cool. Yes, thank you. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, musicians that would really love to get any kind of recognition that, yes. that really deserve it. So. And, you know, the point of, the point of this show is... is to, to feature, to spotlight, to give people the opportunity to have access to things they wouldn't otherwise have access to. And for me, in my own way, to, as I was telling you off the air, to kind of stay stay current with the industry as I don't do a lot of performing anymore. But I do remember as a performing artist that, you know, there's it's getting really, really difficult to find avenues to get your stuff heard. I mean, we've all been to all these various clubs. And as you said, it's it's a challenge sometimes to get in there and then you may or may not be playing for the right people, the ability to get your stuff on the air and then the ability That's for right. you to have access to that file to then share with people in your own group and not have to worry about, Hey, I'm going to be on the radio at three 30 in the afternoon on KSW. You better listen at that exact time or you'll never hear it yeah, again. Right. You know, so for people to be able to share their stuff and, and that's, that's really kind of what this show is supposed to be all about as well. That, that so. has been one of the best benefits of the web right. is being able to get to it when you want it, right. when you can actually listen to it. Absolutely. And I will say, too, that uh, people like Josh Farley, who's a reporter for the Kitsap Sun, is doing something similar as you are. He's got a YouTube uh, thing called the Bremerton Beat Blast where cool. he's featured at least 15 writers off uh, that uh, I put him in touch with via the showcase. He's featured those as the soundtrack to his Bremerton Beat Blast, which is occurs every week. Oh, so awesome! Yeah, it's uh, it's great exposure for for artists. Yeah, and that that's really that's what it's all about. That's the ultimate goal. Is I, I asked you about that a few minutes ago before I, I completely sideswiped your answer. Um, <laughs> but you know the the ultimate goal then is to get people heard, and then once they're heard, to really keep them on track and and help them progress and and develop them and get them to the point where then they're they're ready to, I guess, uh, fly on their own, if you will. Yeah, and I will say this is the worst, most horrible time for songwriters ever in history. Okay. I won't go into it. It's a, probably a whole other podcast, but the way the publishing business is oh, run these days yeah. is, uh, is a sham and a shame for songwriters. Sure. The way they collect uh, BMI dues or ASCAP dues and pay them out to the to the songwriters who earn them. Right. 
uh, and the way the that whole industry works in the publishing department has never been worse. Yeah. Well, you, that's why you see a lot of, of people self-publishing anymore. And, and, yep. and while you may not get the large-scale distribution on the physical level, I think that's why you see a lot of artists go towards digital distribution. Yes. And, you know, things like Reverb Nation and, you know, uh, iTunes and, right. and iHeartRadio and Spotify. And, and, and Taxi is yeah. another very big avenue for publishing. Absolutely. Uh, and all the more more important nowadays than ever is the ability to market yourself from the ground up. Right. And the ground, the rubber meets the road in, sure. in a personal performance. Yes. You know? And as a lot of us know, the, the the biggest hurdle to overcome when you decide to go down that road of either self-producing or self-publishing is you absorb all that cost, right? You pay for your own materials. You're, yeah. you're paying for duplication. You're paying for studio time. But you don't have to pay anything back that you haven't already paid into it. There's not no worries about residuals going towards somebody else or having to pay yeah. somebody else out before you get your yeah. take. Every dime that you put in, if you get it back, you choose what you do with what you get coming back to you. So. Yeah, I might say, too, that there's a whole lot of people. What I get uh, stated to me so often is that people who write, uh, maybe they got 20, 30 songs in their category or something and uh, catalog, and, and they want to, and they're telling me, you know, I, I really don't want to perform. I really don't want to do that. I just want to write and have other people do the stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's doing almost nothing about advancing your career. Right. Let alone interacting your works with the world. You, you know? could do that once you've already achieved what you need to achieve. Maybe. You but know, still you have to go, you have to interject yourself into the world and figure right. out how you're perceived and where to correct yourself and how to grow as a writer. Yeah. You can't just sit back on a couch and think that the industry is going to come to you. Yeah. You have to get out there, get proactive <laughs> with your own career, you know. The the businesses, the performing side of things, right, the recording side of things, all of the the stuff that your genu- or general listener knows about you, really where all of the quote-unquote magic happens is all the behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, it's and all it's, hard work. It's all marketing, and it's all getting it, in the hands of the right people or in the ears of the right yeah. people. It's like going to college. Right. How much are you going to spend Ugh. on getting a career? Dude, don't even tell how me much about how much time are you going to spend getting a career, you know? Yeah. I know tons of people who have multiple college degrees who never got to put that to use because yeah. of, you know, not being able to find the the avenue with which to take that knowledge and actually turn it into practical application. Yes. You know, and the you know, music business or any other kind of arts and entertainment business, not only is it fickle, um, but it's, it's very narrow. I mean, it's, it's absolutely the, the barriers to entry are far more than the access points. Right. And so you can't just think that you're an engineer. Yeah. Draw up some stuff that may even be good. Right. And sit on a couch and sure. say, I want the industry to come to me and absolutely. use my stuff. Well, you've, we've all heard the stories and we've all come across the people that are why is this person not a multimillionaire? Why is this person not touring the world? Why is this guy, yeah. you know, doing whatever it is they're doing? And it really just kind of comes down to, you know, are people able to exploit every opportunity right. that they have? They're and, not and working it. Yeah. And if they're not working it, they don't know how to work it, you know, right. or they don't have, they suffer from motivational problems or self-esteem exactly. issues or, you yeah, know, it's you, hard enough. It's impossible enough 
the way everything is stacked against you. Right. But it's absolutely impossible if you don't put it out there and put the energy behind it yourself. Right. And so that's that's where we come in. That's that's what you're doing is, is the showcase providing is providing that forum to basically tell people, hey, listen, this is a shot for you to, to get some exposure. But more than that, it's a shot for you to get your craft down in in yeah. an environment that welcomes the experimentation, that welcomes the trial and error. And you're not going to be ridiculed for making a mistake. You don't have to worry about perfection. This isn't this yeah, isn't we're like, not your friends or your family. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this isn't the Grammys, right? Yeah. yeah. So uh, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to checking out the showcase tonight. Uh, as you said, I am going to be there, and we're going to listen to everybody that wants to come up and play tonight. Hopefully, we'll get to have a couple of good conversations and line up some stuff for the future. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the hour out of your day today before we uh, head out and uh, joining me here or letting me join you here in your studio. Uh, next time we'll do it at my place. And uh, okay. as you said, there's there's a lot of stuff to talk about. So uh, before we close out this portion of the show, why don't you just go ahead and uh, tell us where everybody can find you on the interwebs. On the interwebs, there is jefftasson.com that has a bio and and some material up there that you can you can purchase. Um, it says more about the accolades and things like that. More, if you want to find some information about me. Sure. Otherwise, it's all the Facebook uh, presence, Jeff Tasson Facebook, Patty Tasson Facebook, and Jeff Tasson Songwriter Showcase. Awesome. And the Songwriter Showcase is where we're going to be tonight. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with you with some awesome artists. So stay tuned. Thank you. I could hear the rain last night Like it owned the place Like it's never been away And I, a witness Stumble onto this private expose Leaves are shouting out Over voices and over landscapes unseen Hissing in the dark Drumming on the leaves Come on, make me clean Listen to the rain Curtains lapping down the road with a wistful sound over the pavement, dripping from the eaves, lost to the ground. A single drop is an ocean wide emotion when I weep. River runs through my head at night Come on, let me sleep Listen to the rain 
Listen to the rain. 